the blood that was shed for our sins, that we can be forgiven, that we can have newness of life. And I pray, Lord, for your anointing on Brother Bob as he shares the message you've laid upon his heart, um, that it would encourage us, that it would convict us, that it would draw us to a closer walk with you is our prayer, and that as your continued work goes into our our hearts and our minds and our way of life, that um, we would grow in the likeness of Christ because of your word in our hearts today. I just pray for your anointing on this service. also pray your blessing on Claire as he desires to serve you in ministering to the people there. I just pray that you would use him even today as a channel, as a vessel, um, that he could also draw men's hearts unto yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Lord bless you. I bring you greetings greetings in Jesus' precious name. Our intention yesterday evening was to slip into the church parking lot with our blue and white camper and slip into the back row this morning and and, uh, listen to somebody else preach, but that was not to be. I'm happy to share God's word whenever I get the chance. The message God laid in my heart this morning is one that I have preached a number of times now. That's one that grips me every time I preach it. The title is simply, Shall I Not Drink It? It is taken from John chapter 18. I invite you to turn there. We'll read, starting in verse 1, John 18, 1 in a minute or so. But our text is a striking portion of Scripture. It's not an obscure one. In it we read of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a dramatic night scene complete with soldiers and weapons and torches. And a man named Judas Iscariot, disciple turned traitor. We will read what Peter thinks is right to do in such a situation. We will also read what Jesus, uh, in tune and surrender to God, how he responds. Were we writing the script of our lives, I doubt very much we would invite into our life, into our prospects of the days and months ahead, the things that Jesus was facing. What we see demonstrated in this portion of Scripture is Jesus, the Son of God, walking in a wonderful submission to His Heavenly Father, two very difficult things. And what we consider in this message is a power example to me, I hope to us, of what it means to worship and serve our Heavenly Father and what it means to really be His disciple in deed and in truth. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing, and get this, remember this, Jesus, therefore, verse 4, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officer of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was a father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We read this portion of scripture to get the context, and I'd like to focus on verse 11 for our thoughts this morning. And it talks about a cup. I took the liberty to bring a cup along this morning. When Jesus is speaking about a cup, though, he's not speaking about a vessel in which we would drink coffee, tea, milk, or water. He's using a figure of speech. And uh, the figure of speech would have to do with what was in the circumstances ahead in Jesus' life. That is what he refers to when he says the cup. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now, we already know from the word of God that Jesus knew. I pointed that out in verse 4. He knew what was in his cup. You with me? You may nod your heads or say amen. He knew what was in his cup. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew his disciples would desert him. He knew the chief priests would accuse him. He knew that Pilate would deliver him. And he knew that soldiers would nail him to a cross to die a most agonizing death. So when Jesus spoke about the cup, those things were in the cup that Jesus spoke about. Those things were approved in the mind of God for his son to experience. Those awful things for a man to experience were necessary for Jesus to become the captain of our salvation. We do not find a whitewashed portrayal of Jesus and his heart through the Gospels, especially in this, uh, these, this, these hours of his life. The Apostle John does not record much of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke records in more detail what happened between Jesus coming to the Garden that night and when the betrayer showed up with the soldiers. We need to consider what Luke records first about Jesus in the cup. Luke 22 records Jesus instructing his disciples to pray. Then it says he goes on, while he goes on a bit further, kneels down, fix that in your mind, he is pictured in your mind, he kneels down, and he prays earnestly. In verse 42, it's saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup. And he was referring to things we said was in this cup. We're in this cup. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, but what you will. So God does not hide from our eyes the struggle that was going through the mind of his son as he beheld the agonizing cup that lay before him. Yes, Jesus, that spotless lamb of God, was in great agony as he beheld the cup that was before him. Now, if you've been in a situation in life where something very, very difficult lay ahead of you, and you sort of dreaded it, it filled you with deep emotion and feeling, and you have an idea, as Jesus looked into his cup, what was there, and it was an agonizing thing for Jesus to behold. His agony was so great that Luke records that an angel from heaven appeared, strengthening him there in verse 43. And verse 44, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's what Luke records about Jesus in the garden and the cup 
Matthew's Gospel gives yet other details about the events there in Gethsemane. He records Jesus saying to his disciples there, he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry here, watch with me. So can you, can you picture Jesus going on, kneeling down as Luke records, and then in such agony of soul, he falls down on his face as Matthew records, saying, O oh my Father, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew records Jesus coming back to his disciples, finding them asleep. He wakes them, admonishes them, and returns to pray some more. And again he prays, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Jesus returned to find his disciples asleep again. He left them. He went back and prayed again. Matthew says, saying the same words. We worship the Lord for His purity, His holiness. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ for being such a picture of submission to the will of His Father, even though that submission meant a very, very painful uh, time ahead for Him. We hear the agony in His voice. We perceive something of the horrific vision Jesus saw as He looked into that cup. And we hear the longing in His heart, Heavenly Father, is there some other way? But almost in the same breath, Lord, I don't want my will, I want your will to be done. We hear that, that submission, and that is, that is instructed to me, I hope to us. We don't have to be all gung-ho about doing what God asks us to do. Submission is a beautiful thing. And Jesus, well, he was gung-ho about doing his Father's will, but it certainly was nothing that was appealing to the flesh. We hear the prayer, the longing of his heart, if there might be some other way. We also hear in the same prayer, and I think that's significant, Jesus' submission to his heavenly Father. What Jesus experienced there in the garden is like you take, make a little window in a man's heart who sees something horrible ahead. And knowing his Father's will, Lord, this looks really difficult, but I'm going to follow you. I want your will to be done. So Judas shows up with his band of soldiers, betrays Jesus, and they move to take him, and Peter whips out his sword. The Bible says, we read it, that he smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I'm not skilled in the matters of carnal warfare, but I don't think Peter was aiming for the ear. I think he wanted to make that man a foot short at the top. I'll let that be as it may, but what I find so striking is at that moment, Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword, stick it back in that sheath. Peter, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Ponder those words. His words indicate that Jesus had accepted the cup. Yeah, a few minutes or an hour before, he was struggling, agonizing what was in there, but he said, Peter, the cup which my heavenly Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? But that cup of Jesus' suffering was too much for Peter to stand still for, and he's going to do what he can to prevent Jesus' arrest. He is going to use the sword to accomplish his purpose. Jesus said, Peter, put it away. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now step aside for a moment. You realize this is not the first time in Peter's life where 
thinking that he is being a true friend and a disciple has been brought to realize that in the zeal of the moment he is actually working against Jesus. Have you thought about that? Peter is brought face to face with the realization that in the zeal of the moment what he thought was being a part of a true friend and a true follower of Jesus he's been brought to realize that he's actually working against his master. Turn with me please to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'd like to jump in here at uh, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John, the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Excuse me. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now get what comes next. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter's answer to Jesus' question was a profound answer. Even more than that, it was a profound confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And that is a personal conviction that God would have every one of us confess from our heart. Even more so, open her mouth, declare it. How did Jesus respond to Peter's confession? He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Why was Simon blessed? Have you pondered that? Because the conviction that Simon Peter had arrived at was not something he got from sitting under the teaching of man. He arrived at that because of what God has spoken to his heart and convinced him in his heart that this man was the Christ. He hadn't gone to some seminar. Jesus said flesh and blood had not revealed it unto him. Simon had come to that conviction. I tell you, brothers and sisters, when you know you've heard from God, not this self-love kind of a feeling, but when you know you've heard from God and you obey it, you confess it, you talk about it, that's a source of joy in the Christian's life. To know you've heard from God and are walking in obedience to that. So Peter, Peter's knowledge and conviction had come from the Heavenly Father. We affirm, we observe Jesus' blessing and affirmation to Peter for listening to God. And then in that verse 21, it says, From that time forth, Jesus began to tell of what is going to befall him at Jerusalem. He's going to be suffered, he's going to be opposed, he's going to be even killed. Now Peter had embraced the reality in his heart that Jesus was a Messiah. 
He was a promised one that they, as a nation, were expecting. But there was no room, not a bit of room, in Peter's mind for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer as Jesus said he would suffer. We would say, no way, Jose. You know, that's, a, I guess, an American expression. Matthew says, Peter took Jesus. Todd, if you were still up here in the pulpit, I would demonstrate what that meant. It meant he literally, he took him. No, Lord, that shall never happen to you. Do you sense Peter was just sort of off the cuff? No. He was intent about this. He took Jesus and said, No, there's, uh, this is no way for a Messiah to suffer. He began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Being it, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter did not want to see his Lord go through the things that Jesus said was going to happen to him. And the specter of Jesus suffering so so aroused Peter's emotion that he, he didn't just entertain these thoughts in his mind, he blurted them out. I don't want this ever to happen to you, Jesus. Now many of you, I suppose, were like me when I first read this that I understood it. How many of you were shocked at Jesus' response to Peter? May I ask for a show of hands? That he would turn around and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had blessed Peter, and now he turns to Peter and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me. Offense, in the Greek, mean, if you look it up, it means a trap stick. Now you know what I'm talking about, right? I see some puzzled looks. The, the trap stick, like it's a trigger for a trap. Mike may remember this back at Poplar Hill. Dan Miller and I, one Saturday, we heard about native people snaring rabbits, and we thought we're going to try it. And we went out, and he set one kind of snare, and I set another kind of snare. And the way I set it, grabbed a little sapling about 12 feet tall, pulled it down. This was in the dead of winter, snow. We pulled it, pulled it down, and and notched it in the side of another tree. So it was just, just uh, barely hooked there. And then we would take a, a snare, a brass snare wire, and make a loop and like that, and we'd, we'd tie it onto that bent-over tree and uh, position it, the whole thing, so that that snare was right where Bunny Trail came riding along. You see the Bunny Trails from the, from the tracks in the snow. And uh, that's all positioned in such a way that when Bunny Rabbit comes hopping along, he doesn't see the snare because there's a little brush camouflaging it, and he puts his head through it, and it tightens around his neck, and he starts struggling, and the sapling gets dislodged from the tree and jerks it up far out of the reach of critters that like to eat fresh rabbit. And then the, the people would have it for their furs or whatever. And the rabbit will die quickly, and it will be there for the trapper. Why was Peter's statement such an offense, such a trapstick to Jesus? Because Peter, without thinking about it, had set a snare, a way to turn Jesus aside from drinking the cup his father had given him. He had set a trap for Jesus. He wasn't thinking about setting a trap. He thought he was being a friend. Jesus tells him like it was. He said, Peter, you don't savor the things that be of God. You look at things, you savor the things that be of men. This was Jesus speaking. This was perfect love speaking. This was the sinless Son of God speaking to his disciple. As I said earlier, I do not believe Peter had any notion that he was working against the will of God for what he had just rebuked Jesus. I would give Peter the benefit of the doubt that he thought he was being the part, doing the part of a true friend. After all, don't friends, don't true friends desire 
pleasant circumstances and good outlooks for those that they care about. We might even in reading this think we should be doing what Peter did. Until we read what Jesus said. Jesus said it the way it really was. Peter, you do not savor the things that be of God. Peter, you really cherish the things that be of men. Savorist in the Greek means to exercise a mind to be disposed in a given direction. So Peter, in the exercise of your mind, the way you have set yourself to think, you are not thinking as God would think. You are thinking as a man would think. I find that pretty strong language. But this was Jesus, love personified, speaking this to his disciples, to let his disciple know that the things that he was saying and doing were not of God. They were of the evil one. So back to our text in, in uh, John 18. Peter, in his love for the Lord and his zeal for his friend, had tried to defend Jesus against such mistreatment. And Jesus commands Peter, put away your sword, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now hear me, please. When you observe something difficult in your cup, where do you think it comes from? We tend to think that when something agonizing or difficult appears in our cup, we tend to think that this is not of God. But Jesus here said, The cup which my Father hath given me. It was like the Heavenly Father reached out and said, Son, here it is. This is the cup I want you to drink. We think of the betrayer in there. We think of evil men plotting against the Son of God. And we observe Satan moving in the minds and hearts of his enemies. We might fail to see that God, knowing all those things, permitted or ordained them into his Son's life for the ultimate good of the kingdom of God. And those things in Jesus' cup, so difficult to observe, were necessary in the mind of the Heavenly Father if Jesus was going to become the captain of our salvation. I have a lot to learn. What it means for me. When Jesus said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? God had given his stamp of approval for those things to be in his cup. And we think when something difficult comes, well, pity me, poor me. If only God had his way, I shouldn't have to go through this. So I have a lot to to learn. The burden in bringing this message that God has sprung out of devotion one morning a couple years ago is centered on bringing us to to an awareness of what is in our heart as we observe the things in our cup. And uh, what do you see? What do I see in our cup? What do we see in the circumstances of our lives in our cup? The unchangeable things in our life, how do we view them? What is our attitude towards them? I'm not sure what sprung this thought just before the service, but I hear this saying from time to time that people come to the place where they feel they have to forgive God for what He allowed to come into their life. And there's something I cringe when I hear that. Because if I allow myself to come to the place where I, have, where I need to forgive God for allowing it, then somehow I have made myself above God in the first place. And that's what I need to repent of. 
But it's so easy today and age with this, this love of self that has risen so high to, to set ourselves as judges of God rather than being disciples and servants to him. I have some practical things, and please allow me to be candid. None of us, there's not one of us that I can say with complete confidence, none of us had any control over what family we were born into. Can you say amen? You know, we had no control if we were going to be born into a family with a good name or a name that was sort of despised in that community. I remember a young married man, we went back from the mission field, we were at the Mount Zion campgrounds right near where I grew up, some kind of conference, I forget what the name of it was, but this man came up to me and he said, who are you? And I said, my name is Bob Stauffer. He said, that's a good name. Well, <laughs> that felt, it sort of felt pretty good. I said, why do you say that? He said, well, he referred back to the name of Stauffer in the old world was a name connected with nobility and, and uh, outstanding character. And Well, that felt pretty good. I thanked him for sharing that with me. Some years later, I was in another state which remained unnamed, and, and uh, we were looking for some apples after the meeting was over, and this, my host was taking me around to one orchard after another, and they didn't have apples, didn't have apples, and he thought he'd go stop in this one place, and there were three men working on a barn roof. And we pulled in this way, the barn was over there, and uh, my host rolled down his window and, and greeted the men. They knew him, he knew them, and from the roof I heard, Who's with you? And he said, Bob Stauffer. And instantly I knew something was wrong. And a bit later my host said, But this one's okay. We had no control if we were born into a family with a good name or a bad name, but we do each have something to do with what our name becomes. But where we came from, we have had no control over that. And I hope none of us kick God in the shins for allowing us to be born in the family we have been. We have an opportunity to make something of that name for the Lord's sake. None of us, none of us had any say in what color our skin would be. None of us ever ask our opinion on what color of hair we would like. My wife and I do farmer's market throughout the summer. Those of you who are involved in the public square, you see a lot of people who are not at all satisfied with the color God gave them. Uh, the, sign, the colors I see today used to be just the neon signs, and now they're in people's heads. We did not get to decide if we were going to be born in a family where food and clothing was plentiful or if we were born into a family where to get those necessary things father had to slave away every day just to put one meal on the table we didn't get to choose that brothers and sisters that's part of what was in our cup beyond our we didn't put it there we had no say if our parents would be loving parents godly parents who would endeavor to raise us up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, or if our parents were drug addicts, or hippies, or even if our conception was outside the bonds of holy matrimony, we had no say in that. 
Those things were in our cup. We did not get to choose our genetic makeup. Where we might be a healthy critter, like I've been most of my life. When someone else faces serious, life-threatening things throughout much of their life. We didn't get to choose that. I don't know how many of you know my youngest daughter and marriage to Reuben. And they've adopted three children because she is herself has serious health issues. And this third child was, I know far more than I'm permitted to say, but I can say this much. The third child was healthy in her mother's womb a week and a half prior to when the baby was due. And something tragic happened to the mother. The mother almost died. And the baby almost died from lack of oxygen. She has been in and out of the hospital more times than I've visited a hospital in my life. It's, it brings tears to her eyes to see the, what that child is going through. Did she have any say in those things happening to her? Those things are in her cup. And you may know similar situations. You and I had no choice being born into a country that was at peace. Or if we were born into a country where bombs and bullets could come down at any moment. We had no say in that. I'm just trying to list some of the circumstances we people find in the cup that our Father hath given us. I ask, what is our attitude toward the things that are in our cup? Have you thought about it? What is our attitude toward them? What is our attitude toward, toward the one who permitted or ordained? I'm not wise enough to figure out what God permitted someone, some evil man to do or what he said, this shall happen and orchestrate this. I hope I'm saying that right. What is our attitude toward the one who permitted or ordained those things to be in our cup? And how do we speak about the difficult circumstances in your cup or in my cup? How do we speak to others about what is in their cup? Do we, like Peter, express what seems loving to mankind? May this never happen to you. Or I sure hope you don't have to go through that. I find, I haven't figured it all out yet, but I find the need for great care in how how I speak to another what is in their cup. Or in my cup. Because how I think and how I speak about the things in my cup or another cup reveals a great deal of my submission to the Heavenly Father and His will for my and their life. Will I be working with God's plan or will I be working against it as Peter was? Jesus said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? My friend Henry is no longer living, but he was a strong man until 2009. Proverbs 20:29 says, "The glory of young men is their strength." Young men, if you're a young man, raise your hand here. Well, I like something that was going right up like that. I knew something of that years ago. It's not that way anymore. But Henry's a strong man, well into his 50s. 
in their family's beekeeping operation, they don't fool around with medium honey supers like I use, and I think Eric probably uses the medium honey supers. When they're full, they weigh something north of 40 pounds. They only use the deep ones up in Nipua. Uh Those things weigh north of 90 pounds when they're full. And you picture a hive with six or seven of those stacked up, and the enormous strength to take them off. I'm sorry, I guess they make men stronger north of the border. And, uh, and inside one week, hear me, inside one week, Henry lost most of the use of his legs. In his language, I'm not sure how he ever came up with this word, I don't think you'd find in the dictionary, he said, but my legs went blubbery. No strength. He never was without the use of a walker or a cane after that. Cancer was growing in his back, impinging on the nerves of his leg. Excuse me, he spent about a month in the hospital and obviously had many, many things to think about. If that happened to you or me tomorrow, we would have many things to think about too. I, I had not traveled the six hours or so to visit him, but when he came home, I called and we spent about 45 minutes on the phone together. And I'm sure there was, there was some agony, some struggle in facing and learning to accept the things the Heavenly Father had permitted to come into his cup. There were doctors and nurses caring for him. There were visitors who came in and prayed for his recovery. I think it's fine to do that. But when I spoke with Henry, shortly after he came home, I asked him, Henry, how do you face life now with these sorts of limitations? And I don't think, brothers and sisters, this side of glory, I will forget what he told me. He said one day a nurse in the hospital was telling him how awful it was for a man such as him to have to go to go from being such a strong man to being so weak and not able to do much of anything. It's just not right, she said. And Henry's response, he related to me, his response to her, he said, Ma'am, he said, God never promised us that we could live out our days in our strength. Is that true? Did God ever promise you that? And the nurse responded, yeah, I think you're right. You see how easy we can say things that we have expectations how God should do it if he's a good and loving God. It seemed to be a new thought to that nurse, and she agreed that God had made no such promise. And two or three times in that conversation with Henry, he referred to as, get this, this my light affliction. This my light affliction. I'm sorry to confess that if tomorrow my legs turn blubbery and that was all I could ever do without assistance, I'm not sure I could say this my light affliction. It would be, you know, very difficult. Henry has gone on his reward about two and a half years ago. Dear friend, and I will remember Henry's testimony until the day I die. And when I go through something difficult, and I've had a few the last couple of years, I remember Henry's words, and God has used that man. And his drinking the cup his father had given him without kicking at God or complaining to bless me and sow something into my life. I think right now of Fanny Crosby, a hymn writer who was made blind by a doctor's error. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. She was made blind by a doctor's mistake. And if such a thing happened in the U.S. of A today, that doctor would be in deep Dutch because they would probably sue them for everything they're worth. 
But near the end of Fanny Crosby's life, she was asked a question. If you could meet the doctor who made you blind, what would you say to him? How many of you know the answer to that? Just a couple. Her answer was, I would say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she went on to explain, because if I could see as other people see, I would have never seen the things that I've seen in my blindness. Blindness, a difficult thing. Do you think Fanny Crosby accepted the cup her father had given her and drank it? And we're all the blessed today for it as we sing her precious hymns. Joseph in the Bible had no say in what family he would be born into. His father, Jacob, both took advantage of others and was taken advantage of himself. His mother was one of two wives and two maids who bore children to Jacob. You talk about a dysfunctional family. Jealousy, competition, hatred, favoritism. Joseph's mother died young. I don't know, perhaps had something to do with her lying about stealing her father's idols. I don't know. But he had brothers who were violent and cruel in their anger, and Joseph tasted some of that. We know the story of mistreatment and abuse of Joseph by his brothers, by Potiphar and his wife. Joseph knew his brothers meant evil against him. But he also came to realize that God had his hand in all of it for good to save much people alive. I believe Jesus, or Joseph accepted the cup his father had given him and drank it. What is in your cup? What is in mine? Do we accept the cup our Heavenly Father has given us? God forbid we go through life railing against the one who gave us the things in our cup. And when we see others facing difficult circumstances in their cup, how do we speak to such? How ought we to speak to such? Do we judge God as unloving or unfair for not preventing such a cup? Or do we encourage that person and support such a one as they drink the cup their Father hath given them? My prayer is may God help us have the mind of Christ in these things. Shall we kneel for prayer?